You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 106. Today, we're asking the question, is it possible to teach critical thinking? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name is David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So, Drew, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, David, before we get into the main episode, I just wanted to mention something a little bit more personal. We're both podcasters, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, we were sort of talking about this before the episode, and I think you're listening to a bit less now that you're traveling a bit less. But in the past few days, it's come out that one of my favorite podcast co-hosts was engaged in unacceptable behavior, resulting in basically the breakup of the podcast and a lot of the community around it. I've been pretty upset about it, but it was a reminder to me about how important the parasocial relationships are that we form with people who we watch or listen to in a regular basis. David and I, we do this podcast basically because it's a good excuse to hang out together and we like to talk about interesting stuff and we didn't get to do that after David stopped his PhD, so it was a good way to restart it. But we know there's lots of people who regularly hang out sort of virtually with us when we do these recordings. We know a few of you personally. Some of you we've met once or twice. Some of you we exchange comments with on LinkedIn but haven't actually met. But like, despite the fact that we don't know you well, uh, you're willing to basically let us talk at you for up to an hour at a time every couple of weeks. And that's pretty generous of you. There aren't many people I've got who will just listen to me talk about my special interest. So we give you free content, but you give us your time and you give us your trust in regularly listening. And I just wanted to let you know how much I personally appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, Drew. And and I do as well. And so it's just always, always, uh, you know, not a great situation, but um, but a, a nice reminder. Drew, today's topic comes from a paper shared by one of, well, one of, one of both of our uh, PhD students, Russell McMullen. And Russ has been on the podcast before, uh, and he's doing his PhD on engineering decision-making for safety. And as part of that, he spent the last year or so doing a very broad and very deep literature review on multidisciplinary approaches to decision-making research. So, you know, we, we make decisions every day, but, you know, wait until that literature review comes out and just the range of ways that we can think about what a decision is and how we go about making them. But this paper we're going to talk about today is kind of one of those gems that he dug up in, in his process of doing a, a broad literature review. Yeah, and, and it's it's one of these things when you're supervising a PhD student that you make them do a ton of reading. And just very occasionally they make you do some back by sending you a paper and saying, hey, what do you think about this one? So critical thinking, Drew, you know, do you want to sort of share some you know, opening thoughts around that? Yes, yeah, so, so critical thinking is one of the most overused terms I think we have, uh, particularly overused in education and particularly overused as a complaint that people say, you know, high schools and universities, we should be doing more to teach and encourage people to think critically. You know, another way of saying it is sometimes people say, you know, it's less important what you know about and what you think, and more important that we teach people how to think. And why don't we do more of that? 
And even though it's a very vague thing to do and really hard to pin down exactly what we mean by critical thinking, you know, sometimes we just mean, why do people not think more like us? And sometimes we genuinely mean like something specific. But I think it's sort of making a bit of a resurgence with tools like um, ChatGPT. And uh, David, you might know, I can't remember the name of Google's equivalent as well that's come out recently for their equivalent of ChatGPT for search. But it sort of becomes very clear that, you know, just producing data and finding things on the internet are not things that humans have a, as a unique selling point. So we need to sort of focus more on things that humans are uniquely good at. And that includes our ability to deeply understand things, to be reflective and to critically evaluate knowledge rather than just regurgitating it. So it's sort of in the news again recently, complaints coming up again recently, but it's not a new thing. It's one of those like every generation complains about the generation before, or sorry, the generation after their lack of critical thinking. So this particular paper comes from 1993. For me, 1993, I was just out of high school in my first year of university. David, I think you were still in senior at high school. I wasn't quite there yet. I was uh, somewhere, yeah, halfway through high school. But I think it's uh, most of the message of the paper is still relevant. We'll point out where the paper is a little bit out of date. But I think the ideas are actually fairly helpful in think helping us sort of think about thinking critically and learning. And I thought it might be a bit fun to sort of read the paper as a reflection on how we teach and develop safety professionals. So, you know, as, as we go through, have a think about your own education, your own high school, your own university. And maybe on LinkedIn, you could tell us a bit about how we could be doing a better job teaching safety at university if we're supposed to be encouraging these sort of critical thinking skills. Yeah, Andrew, I think um, that reflection about safe professionals, I was sort of doing a bit of reflecting because I get the opportunity to do a lot of, I guess, teaching with with safety professionals uh, uh, these days. And you know, I think where do we spend the most time when when I'm sort of facilitating learning conversations with safety people? This paper talks a lot about well, not a lot, but it, it touches on bias and heuristics. So it's just talking about the way that, you know, we think. And interestingly, Barron sort of suggests that, you know, these aren't necessarily innate hardwired thinking processes for people, but these are learned and shared. So I, th I found that kind of interesting. But a large part of the, the learning that we do with safety professionals is not what to do, but how to go about doing it. So it's not necessarily what advice to pro provide, but how do you go about engaging with other people and and balancing your perspectives with their perspectives and humble inquiry and and constructive dialogue and not about how to do a risk assessment but understanding how how we think about risk and perceive risk and why we do that in the way that we do and and why people do it differently than than others not what's a good strategy but what does it take for individuals and organizations to actually change and and be influenced and um, and adjust beliefs and even like not how to do an investigation, but kind of we've we've talked about investigation a few times on the podcast, but what's the mindset that an individual and organization needs to have and what are the conditions around an incident investigation to deeply understand and learn? So I guess my my initial reflection reflecting on, I guess, how we normally educate, train, develop safety professionals is always probably on the knowledge component um, as opposed to the thinking and understanding component. Yeah, I don't, don't think people would disagree that our goal is to teach people how to think. We just often sort of like put that up as a headline and then we don't then necessarily do a lot in our methods of teaching that actually work towards that goal. Yeah, so Drew, if I just introduce the paper to get us started into, well, into, into the content of the paper. So it's a single author, Jonathan Barron, 
Uh, professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania in 1970. So he got his PhD in 1970. Towards the end of his career, which he had a long academic career, uh, specifically on topics concerning learning, rationality, and then more recently, political thinking and decision-making by voters. The title of the paper is Why Teach Thinking? An Essay, uh, published in Applied Psychology, uh, an International Review. And Drew, you notice here sort of suggest applied psychology, um, I remember reading a lot of applied psychology articles with my undergraduate psychology degree. So it is this, it's a bit like Safety Science, the journal. It's a, this generalist, you know, well-known flagship journal contains a mix of theory and empirical research results and, you know, and also papers that are more like commentary or essays rather than original research. And I guess we've published a few of those in Safety Science as well, Drew. This particular paper makes it very clear from its title that it is a work of critical reflection rather than research. However, Barron does reference throughout the paper, reference a lot of previous publications of his, some of which involved more empirical research activity. So, so this is someone who's researched and thought and read a lot about thinking and then has got to the point of, okay, now, now I want to lay my, lay my thoughts out in relation to this topic. Yes. So, so yeah, I love the sort of laying down, you know, this is what I think, but like, here's the evidence and I produced it. And why didn't you already listen to it? <laughs> so we'll break it up into sections and we'll talk about what um, the paper says in each section and then we'll uh, put our own thoughts in as we go. So do you want to get us, get us started? Okay. So the first section of the paper is appropriately just called Introduction. And it starts off with the groundbreaking idea that the last decade has seen a rebirth of the idea that schools should teach students how to think. And I don't know about you, but immediately I'm wondering, you could write that in 1993, you could write that in 2000, you could write that in 2010, you could write that in 1950. It's a, it's a pretty timeless idea. I mean, in fact, Barron then goes back later in the paper and talks about Aristotle and his theories of how to teach people how to think. But yeah, it is a common thing that people worry about, is how do we make sure that we're not just teaching people knowledge? How do we make sure that people are learning actual thinking skills? Just, just out of interest, I looked up the Australian National Curriculum um, and I saw that they've got sort of like seven general capabilities. You know, it starts off literacy, numeracy, and then one of the seven is critical and creative thinking. So I think that's pretty much what Barron is talking about when he says that you know, it's incorporated into many statements of goals by educational authorities. It's like a grand scale effort that we want people to be literate, we want people to be numerate, we want them to think critically. Yeah, I won't, I won't read it out, but the, like the Australian curriculum's just got a, like a bit of a statement that explains what critical thinking is, what creative thinking is, why it's a goal of education just as much as literacy or numeracy. Yeah, Andrew, we're reflecting on our own time at school and university and, and then our kids' education. And I guess even though that that statement is, is quite timeless, I think we are, seeing, we, have, we are and have seen quite significant changes in education, in, in education, well, you know, curriculum and clearly um, delivery in the classroom over the last, let's say, thirty years since this paper was was published. I know that I we did projects and and Barry's quite critical in this paper of things like projects where you're coloring in and cutting out things out of magazines and not really doing any thinking or or learning. But my kids at school do units of inquiry where they need to have inferences and hypotheses and and research and a whole bunch of things that. I never did when when I was at their stage of schooling. Yeah, although interestingly, the, the point Barron's making is that when people introduced projects, it was to try to encourage critical thinking. So our our like ways of trying to do it 
have evolved and hopefully have got better as we've learned more about teaching. But this aim to teach critically, I think, has always been there. You know, it's, it's a real stereotype that old high schools were old, old schools like all about rote learning. But I don't think that was ever the case. The best teachers have always tried to inspire their students and teach them to do more than just learn the material. How to, yeah, we're getting better at different ways of doing it, and we're learning more about how learning works. And that's really what Baron is at in this in this article: is what do we currently know about how to teach critical thinking? What are we maybe still just doing bad habits to encourage it that aren't really working? What can we do in future? And it's really interesting to sort of look at this point in. 1993 and say, okay, what things that he suggests have we actually embraced wholeheartedly since then? And what things have we maybe just kept doing without thinking about it? So Drew, what else do you want to pull out of this, the introduction? Okay. So, so a couple of things. One of them is that this idea of critical thinking isn't just a school thing. And that's why we thought it would be relevant to talk on the podcast. So you've got like lots of writers who try to encourage people in business to think critically as well. Uh, you got people, so this paper like cites Edward de Bono. Uh, I don't actually know what the age range of our learners are. Your more modern reference might be something like, you know, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. They've always been like these pop culture writers who want to encourage business people and just people out in the world to think better and think more critically as well. And you get like consultants who make their careers out of trying to get corporations and institutions to think better and inspire critical thinking and creative thinking workshops. But yeah, he, he um, and again, this is a kind of timeless statement that the world's become more complex. It's become more difficult for the average person to understand. Being in a democracy is harder. We need to rely more on experts and think about the nature of expertise. Again, like written in 1993, but things have continued to get harder on that front. Yeah, and I think we'll talk about expertise in, in you know, throughout this paper a bit as well, because there were some really interesting sections around there. And it, it reminded me of the, uh, I guess, those little snippets that you might see on social media, those little memes or something that says, you know, I don't care if you've got a PhD, I watched a three-minute YouTube video, so we can now have a healthy debate. But, I mean, part of the point he's making is that not everyone who holds themselves out to be an expert is an expert. And so that's when we, we have to, like, genuinely have good thinking tools around expertise. Like, who is an expert? How do we know who to trust uh, when is the right thing to do just defer to the expert and when should should you actually use your own judgment and challenge the experts? Because there are times when you should do one, time you should do the other. And you're getting it right, sort of at one extreme, you just do what other people tell you to do and you're just a servant of the bureaucracy. And you're at the other extreme, you're like an anti-intellectual sovereign citizen conspiracy theorist. Uh, you know, we'd all, I think, aspire to be somewhere in the middle, but how do you know where in the middle to be on each? Where does the middle lie in each situation? So, Drew, there, after the introduction, we, we get into the next session titled sort of the current rationale and, and opens up with what is thinking. Where do we start? What is, what is thinking? Okay, so he gives us a definition. He says, um, thinking is a mental activity that's used to resolve doubt about what to do, what to believe, or what to desire or seek. Thinking about what to do is decision-making. Thinking about what to believe is part of learning. And then he sort of slightly sort of pushes to side the thinking about what to desire, that it's sort of like relevant, but sorry, it's important, but not particularly relevant to this particular discussion. I mean, he says like the thinking about what to believe sort of falls into things like scientific thinking, hypothesis testing, making inferences about like connections between things, your causal relationships, contingencies. And so Drew, you've got to know it, saying this section's a bit out of date, you know, and you mentioned Kahneman. Um, and Tversky sort of thinking fast, thinking slow. 
a lot more work on heuristics, uh, the entire uh, discipline of naturalistic decision-making, so NDM, which sort of has some crossover with resilience engineering, but then a lot of um, the work on sense-making, Gary Klein's work and, and others. So there's there's a lot of there's – there's, there's actually quite a lot that's been thought about, researched and written on thinking in the last 30 years. Yes, I, I think we know a lot more now than we did then about how people actually think. But I think it's sort of general principles about the need to be able to think and what we use thinking for are probably still pretty relevant. But yeah, I wouldn't use his, uh, he's got a very detailed referenced sort of summary here and I would not use that as your foundation for what we currently know about how people think. That bit's certainly out of date, even if his sort of central point isn't. Um, in particular, sorry, he sort of says that decision-making is the final common path of thinking. Um, I think that's a bit that has been rejected now is that this idea that like everything points towards a decision. We now sort of recognize that people can make decisions without even knowing that they've made decisions or like justify decisions after they've made them. And maybe think think without arriving at a decision. And I think, yeah, Drew, and it's probably about now in the podcast where people are going, Phew. a couple of things maybe. One is that, gee, thinking something that we all do every day, but maybe we haven't really stopped to think about how we think. And um, the first thing I did uh, for our listeners when I jumped on this with Drew after going, you know, spending an hour or so reading about thinking was just to say, gee, my head hurt. So actually reading <laughs> and thinking about thinking actually is, um, yeah, is actually quite hard. Yeah. It might be a little bit easier if we move on to his next sort of subsection about good thinking, which is, I think, fairly straightforward. But like, like we're sort of thinking about, you know, what, what, what counts as good thinking? So he says good thinking is basically just anything that's likely to achieve the goals of the thinker. But he says some ways of thinking are likely to be better at that than others. So, you know, if your way of thinking is leave all of your decisions up to a magic eight ball, probably you're not going to achieve your goals. But you know, some ways are going to work better than that. Some ways are going to go worse. And he says, like, we've developed through philosophy and through psychology some sort of uh, normative models but they're all sort of limited. So we've got things like uh, holding people to logic and using logic to evaluate thinking. But the trouble with logic is that, you know, traditional logic is really about propositions and the relationships between those propositions. You know, like if A is true and B is true, does that necessarily mean that C is true? Um, he says, okay, so if you don't like that, uh, you can go to something like probability, which allows us to deal with uncertainty. But even like probability requires us to subscribe to things like utility theory that says we're trying to maximize the utility that comes out of any particular decision. And so there's no normative model that everyone agrees with that we can apply and just say, okay, here is the standard against we're going to judge decisions. And although interestingly, I haven't actually followed up on this. He says he's got this other article in press that does make some suggestions about this. So maybe somewhere he's got the magic answer that no one else has found. He's got a little fun bit where he says that, like, you know, even if you think of it decision-making as a search for options and then a search for evidence to evaluate each of those options, you can still recognize that utility theory has to apply to the search itself, that spending time thinking about that has costs. And so we can't afford to perfectly make every decision by perfectly searching for perfect information. Uh, so we've got to have tools that... Um, let us do our thinking without getting totally hung up on every decision. Um, as he says, sort of more simply, we can think too much. Yeah. And so, Drew, 
after this good thinking, so so good thinking is about achieving the goals of of the thinker, and there's some normative models and ways of doing that. And Baron also sort of says that even good thinking processes can't won't necessarily help much when specific knowledge is lacking. So you can have a good thinking process, but if you maybe don't have the background kind of field or domain knowledge, it can not necessarily help you. But you know, it, it can help you to acquire that knowledge effectively and and apply it once it is acquired. So you know, critical thinking as a even without domain knowledge is a good way of acquiring domain knowledge. So so I'd never heard of my side bias before, before I saw it as a section heading in this paper. No, I hadn't either. And I think he's just sort of using that as a catch-all term for what we would today sort of think of as cognitive biases. But he's sort of making the underlying point that almost all cognitive biases are to a certain extent types of self-confirming biases that they tend to lead us to maintain our current beliefs rather than to change our beliefs. So it's sort of helpful to think of them as my side. He says it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it favours your side because you can have people who are like chronically blaming themselves for everything. That would still be a maintaining your existing belief, my side bias. And he gives some examples that I think probably familiar to most of our listeners, but I'll just call out a couple. Um, So one of them is what he called selective exposure effect which is now tends to be called selectivity bias, where people tend to search out information that would support their present views. And then they sort of pretend that this is like randomly or objectively gathered evidence. They convince themselves that they have. And you see, this is your classic person on YouTube says, I've done a lot of research into this topic, by which they means I've watched lots and lots of videos that confirm my views and the bulk of the evidence that I've seen confirms my views. Therefore, my views are correct. Yeah, I've heard of that one as selection bias, Drew. And I guess we, since we've already done a, an episode around influencing beliefs and vaccination, I think if you whether you're a pro-vaccination or an anti-vaccination believer, you will um, you will select out the the research and the and the information that that supports your you not you not having to change your your view, which is not what critical thinking is about. Exactly, and he goes through some similar things like how we tend to. Even when we have found things, we tend to evaluate evidence against our beliefs more sceptically than we evaluate evidence that supports our beliefs. We don't tend to look for counter evidence as much as we uh, usually should. We're subject to groupthink, which is sort of like finding excuses to fall in with the views of others who are around us. I mean, he says this sort of like, if you look at all the different steps of making a decision, then cognitive biases fall into each stage. So they when it comes to framing the question, when it comes to searching for evidence, when it comes to selecting evidence, when it comes to evaluating that evidence, when it comes to integrating it, at every step we have cognitive biases that lead us towards confirming the beliefs that we already hold. And I guess when we think about critical thinking, Drew, and, and good thinking processes, I guess this is just this, this is like this section is really just the warning, which is like, you know, that you need to be quite deliberate with your thinking process to avoid some of the less critical thinking aspects associated with all of these types of bias, which we all have. But David, before we sort of like go too much down the rabbit hole of just reciting all of these thinking errors, we should point out, I think we should jump to his bottom line, which he says, by any reasonable description of thinking, students already know how to think. And the problem is they don't do it as effectively as they might. And that's a sort of like really insightful summary because there's been lots of research since 
that has backed up his sort of like a fundamental claim here, which is that teaching students about cognitive biases and teaching them about logical fallacies and even like directly teaching them logic just gives students more sophisticated language to justify all of their own existing beliefs and to criticize beliefs that they don't agree with. So yeah, it's sort of like one of the most important lessons in teaching critical thinking that teaching people about mistakes in thinking doesn't actually make them think critically. It just gives them lots of tools that they can use alongside their existing biases. Um, and there's fun evidence that the smarter students are, the better they are at using knowledge about cognitive biases to criticize other people's beliefs rather than to actually, you know, help themselves think more critically. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't aware of that body of, body of research. It, it makes a little bit of sense now that you've now that you've said that, but um, I guess I'm just reflecting on, on on what we do in safety about teach people you know, that way teach people how you know the mistakes of the way they're currently thinking in the hope that they won't make them. You know, in safety, a lot of times we teach people about you know what what not to do in the hope that they won't do it. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't work if that's not the problem in the first place. If if the problem is that you've got an innate tendency towards certain things, being made aware of that tendency doesn't actually stop you having that tendency. So we've got these. I guess true. There's, there's these realities of of the way that you know we we think as individuals, um, which may not be as as critical as we might like it to be when we think about critical thinking and good thinking. So so what about some beliefs about thinking? The next section is it sort of goes on to talk about some some different beliefs about thinking. Uh, yeah, and so so he starts off this section with the claim that one of the big determinants of how people think is how they believe that they ought to think. So in, in other words, if you believe in certain thinking practices as good ideas, then that actually helps you use those practices. Now, I know that some of my students listen to the podcast and I don't want to like accidentally call anyone out. But one of the things that I use a lot in my own education is reflective learning. Um, and I do it really explicitly. I make everyone in all of my classes submit a learning log every week which is like a reflection on their learnings for the week. And then there's reasonable like evidence of efficacy that that forced reflection does in fact help with learning. Um, and not every student likes it. Some people think it's a waste of time. And actually he points here to sort of evidence that says that students who believe that reflection is unnecessary are actually worse at how they understand difficult reading and students who think that reflection is a useful practice are actually quite good at understanding those passages. So it's like less about whether you're made to do it and more about whether you sort of like buy in to the belief. And so for that reason, it's a good idea to actually explain to students why you are teaching them in the way that you're teaching them and explain to them the theory of thinking and the theory of learning. Because if they honestly buy into that theory, if they believe that that's a good way of thinking, that does in fact actually improve their thinking. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And it kind of, it, it explains something that I've noticed with my own kids is that they're doing a lot more like learning about learning in high school. So when my son did the International Baccalaureate, the IB, they have a like unit called theory of knowledge, which is learning about learning. Um, but all my kids' schools have got some of these like elements of, they're not learning study skills, they're actually like learning theory. <laughs> and learning philosophy about uh, learning and thinking. So it's obvious that like lots of teachers have adopted this idea that 
if people believe in thinking a particular way, that actually helps them think. Yeah, and I think that's um, nothing like what I did in high school, Drew. Um, so I'm sure that they're reading some really interesting interesting theories, I guess. Um, you know, Foucault and um, Descartes and, and these types of thinkers and philosophers. Yeah, yeah David, they're, they're not making high school kids read Foucault. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that. that's, a, that's disappointing. <laughs> Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, corporal punishment got outlawed like twenty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? I've still got it. I've got it. On, I've got most you, of those you books. You can't on pain my... kids. You can't <laughs> make them read for go. <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right, I'm a bit out of touch. So, I guess I mean that that is that is really interesting. Um, that you know, and I guess again, it makes sense. You know, if we believe uh, that something is the way that something should be done, then we're going to find it useful, and and we're probably going to get some efficacy out of out of the process. So, Drew. There's a, are we ready to move on to the next section? Yeah, we're talking about abuses. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting, uh, interesting, interesting title for a subheading. Yeah, yeah. So he basically says, like, so he's talked about this is what people think and know about thinking, and then how do they misapply it? Now, some of this will be out of date because education has moved on, but this is like his hit list of things that people do in schools and things that people do in business education that probably don't actually work according to his research and his point of view. And he starts off with what I think is perhaps an unfair accusation for high school teachers, but would probably definitely apply to a lot of university lecturers. Um, he says, many teachers who try to improve thinking have little understanding of the theory I've just sketched or of any competing theory. I, I, I think that's unfair. Um, I think like, particularly high school teacher education is really quite good as is just the amount of continuing self-education that a lot of teachers do. So I would suggest more that sometimes a lot of this stuff is forced on teachers. And just like with safety practitioners, we end up doing things we don't fully believe in ourselves because it's been mandated as a practice that we should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Drew, you've got a note here about this being sort of also important in relation to organisational training and learning. Yeah, yes. So, so, so the particular bit I was referring to is he says like, uh, sort of what's missing from the conventional wisdom is a common understanding of what the problem is, why it needs to be corrected, and how the various prescriptions will do the job. What he's particularly referring to there is the emphasis on classroom discussions. And he's saying that, like, you know, just saying, oh, well, having students engaged in lively discussions, you know, that might feel good, but does it actually promote what you're trying to promote? Um, you know, what is what is the actual goal of discussion? Is it to teach kids how to discuss? Well, okay, in that case, it's probably pretty good. But it doesn't necessarily promote critical thinking. He says something that I think most people can relate to, that discussion in a class of several students is filled with talk by people who don't have much to say that others can learn from. And many good students find discussions boring and time-wasting for this reason. I could say that about a lot of meetings, a lot of um, vocational training as well. So by this stage in the podcast, you've offended your students and your colleagues in terms of <laughs> meetings. But I've been nice to the high school teachers who look after my kids, David. That's important. Very good. Very good. I think it's sort of important if we think about things like learning teams. One of the questions I love to ask people when they talk about learning teams is, okay, who are you actually intending to learn? What are you intending to them to learn? And how is this process supposed to provide that learning? Not because I doubt that learning teams are a good idea, but I, just because I think often we just aren't really clear on what is the problem we're trying to solve and how is this process the actual solution to that problem. 
and we'll be better at using things like learning teams if we can understand what we're actually trying to get out of them. Yeah, otherwise, they do just become discussions and you, some people like to speak and be heard and other people find that their time is wasted just listening to other people talk. And I think, Drew, if it's to promote critical thinking, which I guess a lot of these things are trying to promote because um, learning and new insights and new knowledge sort of comes from um, challenging existing insights and knowledge. So you've, you've got notes here about, you know, safety workshops, safety days, safety stand downs, a whole bunch of things that we do for safety. And I think that's your, your prompt there, which is, you know, do any of these processes in the way they're designed and delivered promote critical thinking that is actually going to inspire, you know, new, new learning? Yeah, exactly. Um, and you're having someone who's inspiring to come and talk to you about critical thinking doesn't promote critical thinking. Just like having someone inspiring talk to you about the importance of safety doesn't encourage safety. It's got to actually be something that promotes the need that you're trying to fill. This is his conclusion that educational methods must be justified by arguments about their ultimate consequences for what students do and how they think in the future. And although he acknowledges that sometimes that's really quite hard to measure, it should still be the goal we're trying to meet. So Drew, are there other abuses of, I guess, of our knowledge, of our understanding of good thinking? So David, you might be able to think better than I can about sort of like relevant examples for this. But the other one he criticizes is the idea about sort of breaking a skill into sub-skills and just teaching those skills. So like I can see how it sort of works in classrooms that he sort of like divides up you giving people just exercises in matching or just exercises in finding differences as if that's going to create a sort of meta skill of the ability to compare. The only one I can think of is actually something I'm sort of guilty with is teaching people to evaluate a source by breaking it up into think about the timeliness of the source, think about the relevance of the source, think about like, as if there's like individual skills instead of an overall package. Drew, the only one I, the only ones that I can think of, I guess, and and I test this with you around some of our safety practices, like teaching a leader to how to do a in-field safety leadership interaction, and thinking it's going to make them a good a good leader of safety generally, or or give, or teaching someone how to do a take five, and and thinking it's going to make them able to make good risk adjusted decisions. I guess I guess I, I wondered if if that's a sort of example of breaking down something into one transactional activity and and hoping that it's got a much bigger impact than it possibly can have. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good example, David. Um, so he actually really criticizes someone that basically everyone in universities today treats as a little bit gospel, who's Bloom's taxonomy of learning. But I, I think he's being a little bit unfair because Bloom's idea is that you scaffold, you know, you start with teaching the basic skills and then you integrate them up towards the more complex skills. And I think that's totally reasonable. You know, using something like teaching someone how to identify hazards using a take five as a scaffold towards the more complex skill of being able to assess a site and decide how to make it safe. I think that's quite reasonable. But you know, what he's really criticizing is just this in isolation, teach this particular thing as if it's got value in its own right without doing the extra work of scaffolding and linking it all together. So Drew, the next section we go into, the next main section of the paper is just titled The Growth of Knowledge. Do you want to get us started? So I was about to say, like, where to start in this one? Well, he starts in the Middle Ages. <laughs> so <laughs> let, let's start there. Good a place as any. Yeah. So he says, in the Middle Ages, one individual might have been able to learn everything that was worth knowing. You might have had a little bit of a hard job to know what that was, 
But in principle, if you could write down like all knowledge in you know, one really, really good book. But the trouble is that the, just the amount of knowledge continues and continues to accumulate. And people were saying in like the 1930s that we were beyond the point at which any individual could ever, you know, even master their own field, let alone all of human knowledge. Uh, just an example of how it's got worse. In 1993, I was getting weekly emails telling me about all of the new web pages that have been written. <laughs> I'm amazed that you had an e I am amazed that you had an email address in 1993. I was I, I was an early doctor in Australia. Wow, I didn't get an email address until 97 when the university gave me one. But yeah, literally instead of Google, the search engines worked by indexing all of the web pages. <laughs> and you but like you know, now we are way, way past the point of having to like have engines that crawl the internet to find all the papers. And like now we're right at the point where we need AIs to then tell us how to then put that stuff together. So, you know, the idea of sort of doing this, he calls it sort of scholarship, this idea of sort of like meta creating of knowledge is still sort of helpful, but the accumulated knowledge is so big that the most we can do is teach people how to get information and give them enough basic information to make sense of it. But he said, even that's not enough because you're just telling someone how to use a library and use computer databases, or today he'd say, telling them how to use the internet doesn't really let, it lets people find knowledge, but it doesn't let them get hold of the right knowledge. For that, the way most people do it is by reliance on experts. And you know, that's true whether you're someone who you know, trusts a particular news program to tell you what news matters, or if you're someone going to a particular website that you trust that the people there collate good information. Or if you're a conspiracy theorist on YouTube who just watches videos by certain other people. That's how all of us really do it, is we have certain people that we know to trust and we just hope we're getting it right who those people are that we're trusting. And if we could get better at that, then we'd get better at thinking, get better at knowledge. And I think Drew also just remembering it's 1993 and this section is titled The Growth of Knowledge, but I think Barron could foresee also the the rise in well, would possibly not social media and things like that. So it's not just the growth in knowledge, it's more broader than that in terms of critical thinking. It's the growth in information. And I guess that's been one of the main criticisms of chat GPT and the AI and what you've introduced in this episode already is that it can not necessarily find the most, I guess, the most truthful uh, story. It can just find maybe the most popular story. And I guess that's so, so critical thinking becomes. I guess maybe even more important, not just with the growth of knowledge, but with the growth of information. Yeah. And particularly, it used to be that we, we had fairly strong filters for what got recorded in certain formats. So it's not like that every book that was published was reputable, but the amount of work you had to go through to get things published and the number of gatekeepers meant that your average citizen couldn't produce their own book only certain people could. And on average, those people were more likely to be real experts than not. You're not, not reliable, but a good proxy. And like similar for publishing papers when there are only a few journals and you couldn't just send it off to another journal or start your own virtual journal if your paper didn't get accepted. But now the experts are producing stuff on LinkedIn and anyone else can produce stuff on LinkedIn. You can't use the format or the place to distinguish you need sort of other tools. It looks the same. So do that growth of knowledge and information becomes a real, I guess, a, uh, an increasing necessity to 
like that opening line to to teach critical thinking. And so then there's this section we, we mentioned, we briefly touched on expertise uh, and, and I mentioned that we'd talk about it later in the episode. And I guess this is the place to talk about it because the next section is titled The Basis of Expertise. Do you want to pull out some important points here? Yeah, so, so this is going to be the theme that carries on to the end of the paper. This is like his, he's going to build it up into his answer as to how to teach thinking. So, you know, ultimately it's all towards being able, you know, thinking is really about knowing how the experts in a particular field think and using that in order to evaluate the information and to evaluate stuff that purports to be experts. So he's going to get to the point of sort of telling how you teach that. But for now, he's just sort of like setting up the idea that like there's lots of literature about what is an expert. He goes through some of it that your experts have richer representations in their minds of brains. Uh, there's certain things that they do more automatically and more quickly. Uh, they use different systems of classifying knowledge. When solving problems, they tend to work forwards rather than backwards. Uh, there's certain cognitive processes that experts use, certain personality traits, uh, evidence for like different types of thinking, uh, different amounts of like openness and willing to test your own tentative assumptions, all sorts of things that experts tend to do and that tend to make people into experts. He gives lots of citations. His details, of course, are wildly out of date because experts are something that fascinates researchers and they've been, uh, since this is written, uh, what are we up to? 30 years of extra research about expertise since. And some of that research is good stuff. But his overall sort of picture of the landscape of expertise is actually still pretty accurate. It's just the details. Um, but he says, knowing all this stuff about experts doesn't tell you how to know who an expert is if you're not an expert. Um, they don't tell you like, you, because all of the things that characterize an expert in astrophysics would also characterize an expert in astrology. <laughs> How do you know to trust the expert in astrophysics rather than the expert in astrology? David, I don't know how much of this we should go through. He sort of like flings back to Karl Popper and his ideas of falsifiability. I don't think we need to go into this detail. What I think we should get is just to the sort of fundamental idea that expertise comes in a field from self-criticism. That, you know, good fields advance by criticizing themselves, different, but different fields advance by different sorts of criticism. So to understand expertise in a field, you need to understand how that field does its internal critique. So you could say like in psychology, you need to know, okay, how do psychologists criticize a paper? How do they decide what's bunk and not? How do they decide what's a worthwhile theory? Um, how do sociologists critique things? How do they decide what's a worthwhile theory? How do they know what counts as good sociology? And he says, you've got to go into each field. You've got to know how people within that field create knowledge, maintain knowledge, uh, and test knowledge. Yeah, and I think interestingly, Drew, in terms of understanding this expertise, that idea that different fields have different things that kind of counts or prioritize as evidence. So like you said, mathematicians or or you know, physics have certain sort of like, you know, deterministic um, evidence sort of criteria. And then there's sort of sociology, which has more more sort of sometimes consensus-based uh, descriptive kind of like criteria. But then I think it was interesting when we when I thought about the safety, about safety, and it said, you know, in, in fields like uh, safety, it tends to be more about, you know, <laughs> tends to be more about what's practical rather than what works. Um, and I thought about that in relation to things that we we do in safety. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's not working, but it's kind of it's practical. It's able to be done. 
So I think there's a bit of a challenge there for us in safety to go, well, are we actually, uh, I guess, are we focusing on the right things when it comes to our to our to what we do? Yeah, Dev, I was struck by that as well. And that was one of the bits that made my brain hurt a little bit in this paper, because I do tend to basically criticize safety for not being a different field. <laughs> I tend to say, like, you know, in, in safety, people tend to like accept ideas based on popularity and practicality. And I don't recognize that as legitimate. Whereas what he's sort of saying is that like you know, each field gets to say for itself what are its sort of main tests. And so I think not in, not in this paper, probably a, maybe a discussion for another time is the fact that good fields are reflective on their own foundations as well. It's like we've seen over the last 10 years, psychology has actually had a self-critique about its methods of critique. And that's what sort of like sprung, not just the replication crisis, but the whole contemplation afterwards about how did we get to this point of having a replication crisis? What are we counting as legitimate or not legitimate? And, and p-values and all of the all of the changes that have gone in, on in psychology. So I think it is, and I guess we tried to do that in one of the earlier episodes and with the paper, Drew, your, that you were lead author on around the manifesto of safety science about sort of like, you know, trying to be critical on the safety science discipline about how we construct and perform our research. But yeah, so what he's saying is that if we sort of want critical thinking of students and your critical thinking then of students who become adults and become practitioners, then it's got to be almost like a field dependent critical thinking. So if we want students to be critical thinkers in maths, we actually probably do this really well because all through high school, we don't just teach maths. We teach people sort of how maths works and people forget most of the maths that they learn. But they remember the sort of basic ideas of like solving equations and building up theories and solving problems in mathematics. We don't do that so much for other fields. Uh, we do it a lot for like English and literature. We teach people lots of like how to critique and analyze and how literature works as a field. If you're lucky, you probably get some history. But things like economics are usually electives. You're only people who choose to do economics get economics and all other social sciences kind of get left out. So, oh, sorry, the other one we do pretty well is science. We teach sort of to teach people science and like people get taught about the scientific method as if it's the only way of critiquing knowledge sometimes. So we do it well in some areas, but perhaps less so in others, particularly if people then go into a field, which is you know, one of the common ones is going into engineering where you learn how engineering works but you're very adjacent to management econ economics and sociology, and you never learn how those fields work. And so then you find yourself in an organization having to interact with expertise that you never learned how that expertise is um, formed and worked. Yeah, Drew, I'm not gonna start a discussion about engineering and, oh, sorry. Um, and, <laughs> and economics. But yes, I think, uh, I think our listeners will know what we're talking about, about different fields and different ways of thinking. Uh, yeah, so that, that, that wasn't pointed at engineers. That was more about just how we do engineering education. Yeah. And, Drew's an, and, and for our listeners, Drew's an engineer. So that's just a point of critical self-reflection. <laughs> you yeah, we, we do equally the same thing for people who like come up through management economics and find themselves in an engineering organization and they've never sort of like learned how to critical think, think about engineering because they didn't get socialized in that way of thinking. So it's hard to know then who are the ex engineers you should listen to and who not to. Yeah. And so, Drew, that kind of last section before we jump into the practical takeaways is this section title, which I don't really like the title. It was what, what the educated person should know. And 
you know, I think that's a hugely judgmental uh, section <laughs> title, but basically just goes on to say to say those things that we've already said. Okay, you need to understand, you know, you know the nature of true expertise. You need to understand the different the geography of expertise across different fields, and I guess you need to understand yeah how to learn about the methods of inference and 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 search in each discipline uh, and you know other disciplines as well, like what we we're just talking about then. Drew, is there anything else you want to say or add? There's two particular things I'd like to quickly pull out from this section. Uh, one of them is one of his sort of prescriptive solutions is to do like active learning with the specific purpose of trying out how a real person works in that field. So he talks about like in high school, learning history by trying to do some of the stuff that a historian does, take a bunch of sources and try to assemble them into an argument and evaluate them. And that's actually something I'm trying myself in my current teaching. I'm trying to design a new course on accident studies in safety, where we basically get the students each week to take a different accident and sort of critically think about how do we derive safety principles and safety theory from that accident um, as a way of sort of understanding how knowledge in safety science builds up by doing it yourself, by thinking, like analyzing an accident, drawing conclusions, trying to turn those conclusions into recommendations. He also points out this idea of geography of expertise, which I think is interesting that he says, basically people too much like step on turfs because they don't even know that they are experts in that. So like psychologists do philosophy as if philosophy doesn't exist or uh, economists do psychology without knowing that like psychology exists. Yeah, or Drew, maybe uh, managers and HR people and engineers do safety without knowing that safety is actually exists as a discipline on its own. Yeah, but we could do it the other way and say, how many safe, how many times in safety, and I've been guilty of this myself, do we do marketing as if marketing didn't exist as a serious field of study? We just think, hey, I can design a poster, I can design a video, I can design an ad that will improve safety without thinking, hey, there are experts in this, people who know what actually works and doesn't work. Yeah, great point. Yeah, I think that was really all I sort of wanted to pull out of that. So, you step us through your, I mean, it's been kind of a bit of a theoretical conversation about, you know, well, we've been talking about thinking. So, what are, you, what are your practical takeaways for our listeners? Okay. So, so, David, I don't know about you. I wasn't even sure sort of like where do we pitch the takeaways here, but I, I think they're probably almost like at the personal level. So, things to like basically go away and think about for ourselves in our own learning. So the first takeaway I'd say is being part of a good thinker is being able to recognize and respond appropriately to expertise. So I think it's good for all of us to sometimes think about who do we spend time listening? Who do we trust as experts? And like, why do we trust them as experts? And are we going to the right people for the right information or just going back to the same experts, even though they're not actually experts in that particular thing? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good point, Drew. And, and your second your second takeaway here is that there's a common failing in all learning in not being precise about we actually what we actually want as an outcome. So this leads us to doing things that we think are a good activity, like you mentioned earlier, learning teams, safety stand downs, without being clear on who is supposed to get better at what. Yeah, just because something is like a popular or good way of learning doesn't mean you just dump it into your education program. You should think about what's the actual thing you're trying to do here. And the third one is that self-criticism is the key to advancement in any field, but it's got to be well-informed self-criticism. Yeah, otherwise, what happens is people just criticise all of the new ideas. It's just reaction rather than criticism. 
So I think we do this a lot in safety. We sort of fall into two camps. There's the people who aren't trying to critique the new ideas, they're just trying to reject them. And then there's the people who jump enthusiastically on board to the point where the new ideas become dogma and don't get critically challenged and improved. It somehow is a field we've got to learn to do that reasoned critique together, where we criticise in order to move forward, not criticise to move backwards, or to just replace the old with the new, be dogmatic about it. Andrew, it sounds like you've, you know, in this episode that you've softened up a little bit on your students by giving them a weekly learning journal, because I don't know if you remember in my first year of my PhD, you, you made me, had me do a daily surprise journal uh, because I was had been a safety professional for almost 20 years and uh, I was researching the safety profession. I think your way of trying to encourage me to maybe see if I could be more critical in my thinking was to every day record what surprised me today. And I think your, you know, your suggestion to me around that was that uh, those are the situations where the world didn't work the way that you thought the world worked. Uh, and you actually want to capture those things because that's a way of you know being more criti- thinking more critically about the world and and your role. So Drew, is that I don't know if you remember that, but is that something that sort of fits into this category of trying to adjust your thinking? Uh, well, David, I do remember it, but you've also sort of pointed out we never went back and checked whether that actually worked as a learning tool. I just made you do it, and then never came back and said, "Did this actually help?" And so maybe a future episode, we could look up um, surprise journals and see if we can find a paper on it and see if there's any evidence that it's actually a good idea. Well, I think for me, it, it, def- it definitely did make me do, like you say, self-criticism and, and, and structured self-reflection on a daily basis about, you know, why did this person respond in the way that they did? It wasn't what I expected them, how I expected them. Why did this happen like this? It wasn't what I expected. And it really did, I guess, allow me to see the world not just through, you know, a single lens of the way that I always saw the world. Yeah, cool. So final takeaway is just the point that what we think about thinking does have an impact on how we think, which is very circular, but it does sort of mean that like stopping and thinking about our own thinking strategies, you why do we think what we think? How are we evaluating evidence? It can be interesting and self-improving. It can also hurt. I hate that feeling when I can feel my own mind getting slippery in response to a cognitive bias that I know is at work. But it's still, I think, a useful tool, particularly when we find ourselves being dogmatic, being a bit reflective about why we feel so strongly about things can be helpful. Excellent. Drew, so the question that we asked this week was, can we teach critical thinking? Uh, Yeah, that was a big promise for the paper to make, and it never answered it. Um, But it did give us lots to think about. Excellent. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join us for a discussion on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 